Welcome to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference podcast presented by ESPN and 42 Analytics. This is Jessica Gelman, who along with Daryl Morey co-founded and chair the conference with a fantastic group of MIT Sloan students each year. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Good morning, and thanks again for tuning in to the 2021 Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. My name is Grant Ozinski, and I'm a first-year MBA student at MIT Sloan. It's my pleasure to introduce the panel this morning, Negotiating the Future, How Priorities Have Changed as a Result of COVID. Our panelists today are Sue Bird, point guard for the Seattle Storm, Kathy Carter, CEO of U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Properties, and Demora Smith executive director of the NFL Players Association. Our panel will be moderated by Michelle Steele, studio anchor and reporter at ESPN. The panel will run for 35 minutes and will leave 10 minutes at the end for questions. Please tweet at us using the hashtag negotiating the future for discussion and questions. And from there, we'll, we'll down select uh, for the questions to be asked our panelists. And with that, Michelle, I will turn it over to you. All right. Full disclosure, there will be sound effects during the Zoom. Grant, thank you so much. Uh, you have gone to school like this for the last year, so the next 35 minutes is going to be a piece of cake, guys. So Dee, Sue, Kathy, thank you for joining very much. Namaste, good morning to everybody. I'm gonna jump in here with Dee and Sue first because you guys both have CBAs in the rear view mirror. We'll do one of these. Uh, for any negotiation to be successful, you need to identify what the other side, in your case, is the leagues desperately want, right? What was it that you identified that they wanted and what did you get in return? So do you first. Yeah, well, I, I, first of all, good, uh, good morning. Great to be with, with everybody. Um, you know, there, there's always a number of issues that the other side wants and, and probably the best example of what the league wanted was the ability to put on an extra game. Um, in 2011 uh, or 2006, the league had the right to, to go up to three more uh, regular season games um, and, and to do that unilaterally. Um, it was important for us to take away that unilateral right. Um, and if they wanted to be in a position to buy that game 10, 12 years later, um, that's, that, that becomes one of the crux of, of the issue. And, and for us, it was, okay, if they wanna buy an extra game, what's, what's in it for us? And, and those are very detailed, um, some, sometimes boring analytical, uh, analytical studies for us, but it, it certainly is the only way that you can attach the right value to a negotiated point. Okay, and so what were they willing to give up? What was the league willing to give up in terms of concessions to get that 17th game? Well, for us, it was uh, another point of, of, um, of revenue, which over the length of the deal is about $1.5 billion coming to players, 20% uh, pay increases for all of our players, um, taking all of the retired players from the 70s and the 80s and bringing them up to a retirement pension um, um, and present day standards um, and changing our work rules as far as increasing, just to be blunt, the amount of money coming to players. and. And for us, um, those things are always a trade-off for, for the extra work. But until you are in a position to attach the right value to the negotiated point, um, I, I don't think you're able to engage in, in the level of negotiation in order to make that a win um, for your members. Now, uh, you said 
you apologize for being blunt. You, you need to be blunt in any negotiation. Sometimes you have to be even a little bit impolite. Mm-hmm. Sue, <laughs> maybe even use some four letter words every once in a while. Sue, when you guys were negotiating with the league and you're vice president of the WNBA executive committee, um, how did you guys broach the subject of money and when, when it came to compensating players, especially top players, uh, more? Yeah, so our negotiations were, were, I think, a little unique in that we're still a league that's growing. We're still trying to, I kind of joke that this CBA, with all the good that we did, is really just like the CBA before the CBA, a la Jersey Shore, the t-shirt, the shirt. <laughs> it's like we needed something in place that matched where we were as a league that could then set off like a great CBA. And I can't remember now, six, seven, eight years. So we kind of had to have a player league kumbaya moment where we could sit back like, this isn't about tit for tat. This isn't about you give me this, I give you that. This is about setting the stage for what again can be a great CBA in six, seven, eight years. But of course money came up and to kind of touch on your first question, we, we quickly, actually I lie we not so quickly realized that what the league really wanted from us, just to give like a quick glimpse into a woman's basketball, um, a woman's player's life. We play in the WNBA from around end of April, early May to like September, October, give or take, Mm -hmm. we all go overseas. And that's been a gift and a curse, a gift in that we make our money over there, a curse in that we're gone for seven months just invisible to, to, to businesses, to companies, to endorsements, to the whole thing that makes leagues run. So like I said, it, it, it took us a minute to realize what they were asking for. What they were asking for us was to prioritize the WNBA. And they had different ways of doing that. Can't be late to training camp, certain little things to get us. And so once we realized that, that's when we could bring up the money. Like, okay, you want us to prioritize this? Well, then we're going to have to be compensated. And that's, that's really where the real negotiation took place. Everything else that we got in terms of quality of life and benefits, which were amazing, we could do that kind of on the side. This is where like the chunk of it was. If we didn't agree on this part, none of of this would have happened. So that's where where we lived for like a good month in trying to figure that out. And was that a difficult negotiation taking a month? Was that about what you expected or were, were owners kind of holding back or was the league holding back? No. So it's interesting. This was, so it was my first negotiation as part of the executive committee. And I really didn't know it moved so slow, shockingly slow. And I think it's just a product of like, people have lives and it's hard to schedule calls. You know, the owners there's, there's 12 owners in our league. Obviously there's a board of governors who we we more so communicated with, but they have other businesses. We had players overseas. So there was time zone issues. That's really what the hangup was like trying to get people on the same call at the same time. So that was interesting to me, just how slowly it moved because of that. Um, The other part was basically, I guess, convincing, for lack of a better, players to buy into this. Why Mm. should they give up something that is one of their mainstreams of income by playing overseas to prioritize something that doesn't necessarily make us the same money but has the potential to make more. So it's kind of like buying into a dream. So there was, there was some give and take, but like I said, I think the way that it all came up, like all came together, there was enough there where it was worthwhile for us. Yeah, I mean, it's like you guys are wearing two hats. On one hand, you're trying to convince the league, this is good, this is in your interest, this is in our interest, we're all gonna make more money if we come to this kind of deal. 
you're also trying to convince the players, you know, the rank and file, this is a good deal for you. D, you might know something about that. You know, there were some high profile players who, who, who came out against it. Did, did it bother you that, you know, a player like Aaron Rodgers um, posted Twitter and says he doesn't, he doesn't like it. And, and I hear that he's hosting Jeopardy now to make some money. Um, I don't watch Jeopardy, but um, not even like not, not even, even a, yeah, not even a little bit. I just don't. okay. The, um, the final Jeopardy is very exciting. Yeah, I would, so I would recommend. It's now on my bucket list. Okay. Um, <laughs> no, it it doesn't bother me at all. We're a we're a democracy, and I think that anytime you are dealing with um, a, a large membership, and you know, I know Sue. I'm not telling her anything she doesn't already know. You've got a group of players who have a number of different interest um but but we want it to be a democracy we want people to be um involved in it and and i would much rather have people have strong thoughts express those thoughts but it's a it's a democracy where where minority is heard and majority rules and um you know to me it it really comes down to what i ever want the opposite what i want a small group of people um, making all of the decisions for our entire membership. No, what I want a group of people um, who aren't communicating with other people to make decisions about um, everybody else. No, I, I'd much rather have the system that we have. Uh, more than 80% of our players voted on the deal. Um, it, it passed by a, a small uh, majority, but- Well, by congressional standards, I would say that it's an overwhelming compared Compared to what we have in DC, it's like an overwhelm, like a, a small amount for the NFLPA is, is kind of an overwhelming majority. Imagine overwhelming what our country majority. would look like if 80% of our people voted, right? And, and imagine what kind of, of, of distributive democracy we would have if more people became a part of the process. So for us to have a, a membership of over 2,500 players and have 80% of them vote on this deal um, you know, we can always, you know, pick out things that we like and don't like, but I love the fact that 80% of them cared enough to, to weigh in. Kathy, I want to bring in you because you are the one negotiating on, on behalf of LA 2028, these multi-billion dollar deals. I'm going to put my own negotiation skills to the test. Okay. Um, can I have a hundred dollars? I want to buy Seattle storm tickets. Um, the answer is yes. Okay, great. Is the direct, by, by that I'm asking, is the direct ask ever effective? Or in your experience, do you feel like you always need to come up with some sort of like analytical justification for it? Well, I think that, um, you know, it's interesting. I think uh, DeMoris mentioned um, boring the analytical uh, process to make sure that they had an understanding of the economics of what they were asking for in return for giving up the 17th game or, or, or a variety of other, of, other, of other economic opportunities. You know, the same thing when you enter into any negotiation, um, you, the old adage actually, I think, completely holds true. You, you plan, if you, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. And so, in fact, when you're entering into any negotiation, your preparation is your greatest asset. And so to, when you're asking for uh, hundreds of millions or billions of dollars, your ability to validate the reason why you're asking for that amount of money or what is the return for that becomes incredibly important in any of these negotiations. It's so you, not can't just just the, you can't just play the Olympic theme as you enter the room. We certainly and, you know, do that as well. Yeah, okay. yeah. 
And then we like to put Sue Bird and and uh, and many other Olympians up with their gold medals. But but uh, you know the reality is that certainly is is how you enter into a room and and uh, uh, the 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 value of the if the relationship with the Olympic or the Paralympic movement is something that I think most people understand. Having said that. Um, any sort of deal that you would get into the middle, there is a question of, is it value? Does it relate to how much money is being asked for? And the same thing, whether you're negotiating on behalf of players or you're negotiating for commercial deals, um, there is that who wants what. And so I think to a large degree, you you have to start with the end in mind. And uh, sometimes, as Sue mentioned, it takes a little time to even figure out what the end is, it's not necessarily where you don't start with that in mind in some cases. Sometimes it takes a minute for it to actually uh, reveal itself. And then that makes the discussion or negotiation that much, I would say simpler, but but no less complicated. You know, I'm glad that you brought up the quote about if you don't prepare, you prepare to fail. That's something that Bill Belichick would say in, in press rooms and I imagine to his locker room as well. Let's talk about the mindset that you bring into that negotiation. You know, how much preparing, how much do you drill down kind of into their psyche? I, I know a reporter who asked, uh, you know, who asked her subjects, what is your deepest fear? What is the thing that you're most afraid of as a human being? You guys don't have to answer that question right now, but, but like, are you really getting? <laughs> I have a couch back here. I suppose I could lay okay. down. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll get into your childhoods later. <laughs> but, but, you know, how do these relationships sort of factor into a negotiation that might get messy? You know, how much do you, do you kind of delve into, into their psyche and how much do you need to know about their, their personal motivations? D. But D, why do you start? <laughs> uh, yeah. Because you've, you've talked to these guys for, for now over a decade. You, yeah. you know these players. And, and are you, yeah. And I mean, when it comes to the owners, and we, and for the most part, we hate each other. So, um, you know, I Do you think. you mean that? Yes. I don't think we like each other. I, I really don't. Um, and, and that's fine. We, we, they represent management and we represent the good guys. So, you know, at the end of the day, I, I think that there has to be a healthy, um, framing of of the of the role of people who do the work and 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 management and that's fine, but you know your your question was delving into the psyche and and do you spend time understanding where the other side is coming from the way in which they see the world? I mean, of course. Yeah. I mean, I'm a I'm a frustrated philosophy major, so it of course it's what we do. So you know you think about it and to make it overly simple. If you're management, you, you come into the room thinking that the opportunity that you've given players like Sue and players like, like our membership is some sort of wonderful opportunity and they should be thankful for the ability to play in this league. And, and that's a mindset and that's fine. But, but you also have to come back because you're representing a group of members where you're assigning a value and, and, and really you're engaged in a value proposition, you have to remind your members and to make sure that they advocate in a way where, well, wait a minute, you're not really giving me anything because the only people who could be in this room are people who have the skill um, and the ability to play at this level. And so what these workers are bringing to the table um, is the level of work that they can do in order to make this business thrive. And, and so I do spend time, we all spend time thinking about where the other side is coming from. And again, 
that's part of your preparation. You know, you mentioned you're a frustrated philosophy major. You might know that Nietzsche said, make your worst enemy your best friend. And in your case, your enemy is your enemy from the sound well, of it. I, yeah, I'm not sure the, the, anybody who wrote The Art of War would agree to any of that. But um, I'm not sure making them your friend is a, um, a realistic Hmm. Um, goal when you're dealing with a world where there are a group of people who have incredibly short careers. Um, they get paid. Um, they get paid well, but the injury rate in our business is 100%. And not one player in the National Football League can will a position or bequeath a position like an owner can bequeath a team to somebody else. That makes us fundamentally different. So let's talk about asymmetric negotiation, where you are representing players. You know you. Dee mentioned that they, they have shorter careers and these, and these owners are going to be affiliated with the league. Um, when, you're, when you're negotiating with a, a major corporate, a, a league, when you're negotiating with a, an owner that has hundreds of millions or billions of dollars and you're quibbling with over, say, $15 million or $30 million, are you ever tempted to say to yourself, like, you don't need the money? Come on. Um. No, no, because, you know, (laughs) from my standpoint as a player, I'm really just like a person. Who am I to tell somebody what to do with their money in that way, in that tone? Like, I wouldn't feel comfortable. And I feel like that wouldn't be, that wouldn't get the best response. But we did have a moment of time where we were negotiating. So we had done our CBA, done. We all thought we could, you know, rest easy. I'm sure the same for Dee and everybody else in, in sports right now. Kathy, probably you too. It's like, we all kind of took a deep breath when the negotiations for the CBA were done and then the pandemic hit. And then it was like this whole other negotiation to get a season off. So in that negotiation, we had a moment where we knew we weren't going to get the amount of games we needed to get as it pertained to, to what we agreed on somewhere in the thirties, like 36 and up. We knew it was going to be a shortened season. We didn't have force majeure. So that was, that was good for players. But then they found a way to put the season on. I won't get in the details in the weeds, but basically it was a moment of the league, not, not, they weren't coming at us. I'll give them credit. It wasn't like they were like, we can't pay you all your money. They just had some options on the table that had a a decreased salary. And we were basically like, listen, so to your point, we were like, how much money are we really talking about here? Mm. We're not talking about a lot of money out of your pocket yet for the players it would be incredibly meaningful to get our full salary. It would be, it would be, you know, we all, I feel like the one thing I learned was this whole like good faith term, how this is like actually a legal thing. It's not just like words thrown around, but I like to use it here. We're like, you know, we always talk about this good faith and having good relationships. Why wouldn't you want to take this, you know, X amount of money that means so much to us, look at that as an investment in our relationship. Forget salary and basketball and business. This is an investment in our relationship in a very trying time where for you, it might not mean that much, but for the players, for some of us, a lot of us, it was going to make or break whether we went to this bubble to play. Right. So that was one scenario where that was kind of what we talked about in terms of that money. But generally speaking, no, I'm not like, yo, what up? You got plenty of it. Give me some. I do that. All right. So that's why I'm not, that's why I'm not a panelist and I'm just a moderator here. Uh, Kathy, you're, you're, you're laughing and smiling. Uh, did you have a, did you have a take on sort of asymmetric negotiation? Well, I mean, I think that, um, there's so many other factors. All of these things are, are incredibly complicated. And I'd say um, 
for, for when, and I obviously I've got a very different lens. I'm not involved in any of the, um, uh, in the player side of things, but what I'd say when I think about the Olympic and the Paralympic movements, we're looking at how and what do we do to shine a light on not just basketball or soccer or, or some of the, the major sports who have many other ways to get a, light, a, a shining light on them. But how do we actually use the, the platform of, of the Olympics and the Paralympics to actually have dialogue around some of the, the broader issues that we're having around diversity and inclusion? And part of the way we look at that is how do we continue to give more of a voice uh, to athletes? And I think you know, that's something that we're very focused on and, and how do we help build a brand, which I think Sue was talking about so, but, but even in that context, there's so many parties that are always at play here um, that, that the idea that there is a, um, that any negotiation is linear is, is completely, um, is just not at all a, a, a way that we can look at this. And so for us, even if we wanna do great things for Olympians and Paralympians, we also have to take into consideration how that impacts the, the, um, all of the governing bodies of those sports. And so there's never a simple answer, even as Sue discusses what she's talking about there with going into the, into the bubble. And, you know, I still feel for owners who had to figure out what to do with all of their facilities. So there's all sort of, these things are prisms. They're not, uh, they're not a looking glass, but by any stretch of the imagination. You know, Dee, before you joined the NFLPA, you were a, a, an attorney, I guess you still are an attorney, I'm assuming. Um, how does how does the nature of that negotiation change? You know, you were kind of nodding and, and smiling as Sue was talking and as Kathy was talking. I, I'm just curious, you know, how does that, the nature of that negotiation change when you're across the table from a guy who has a billion or whoever has, you know, the Packers are publicly owned, who has a billion dollars plus. I mean, you can go to school and make a comfortable living and amass, you know, several million dollars. I feel like to get a billion dollars there's like a hyper intensity. Um, I don't want to say ruthlessness. Maybe you ruthlessness. Say, you can say you can say ruthlessness. It's okay. Sociopathy. No. We'll leave it. We'll leave it. We'll leave it. We'll leave it in ruthlessness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Uh, yeah. Yes, I do. Um, <laughs> yes, the people on the other side are ruthless, and um, and I think when when you talk about um, especially asymmetrical bargaining or or asymmetrical negotiation, the the reason, at least from the player side, that you have to engage in asymmetrical uh, bargaining or negotiation is because of, of what you've pointed out. If you're looking at a linear definition of power, the people on the other side have a tremendous power advantage because of their money. So, you know, if, if again, if you, if you want to go in a, in a linear world of money versus money, that was 2009-2011. The, the owners decided to lock the players out. That's just simply a power move. They have more money than, than the players. The goal is to choke them out, to make them take a deal that they otherwise wouldn't take. Um, you deal with that asymmetrically by, by trying to attack the money that they have um, in their war chest and to try to create, um, you know, for us, it was a, a secret insurance policy. Um, but, but those are ways, those are asymmetrical ways that you are dealing with the other side's power, right? None of those played out um, in a linear way at the negotiation table. That was suing somebody in federal court um, over their TV deals or going into the market and buying an insurance policy. Those aren't things that we were dealing with at the negotiation table, but those were absolutely asymmetrical means 
of dealing with the other side's power. And, you know, one way that players can kind of level the playing field or that we've been noticing more so, more in, in recent years is using um, using the court of public opinion, you know, getting on Twitter, getting on Instagram. Uh, Sue, I have to bring you in for this because, you know, you famously, famously were involved in that player coalition last year in the bubble, vote Warnock. I think we all saw the, the shirts. Um, how did you determine sort of that was the course you were going to take in a public way, as opposed to, you know, getting on your phone, calling Kelly Leffler, trying to, you know, negotiate, oh, you hold the phone like this, trying to negotiate something behind the scenes. Yeah, well, that that wasn't going to happen. Um, pretty, pretty quickly. You, you knew it was not going to be productive. I hold my phone like this too, don't worry. <laughs> I guess nowadays we're supposed to do this. Um, yeah, that, that wasn't, that's like a political spat I feel like we weren't trying to get into. We went to the bubble for specific reasons, social justice, racial justice, talking about equality, talking about voting. And what, you know, Senator, well, Kelly Loeffler did was try to like redirect that into the whole shut up and dribble conversation by writing that letter to our commissioner. We just wanted to redirect it right back. And the well, way she wrote the that, letter and released it to the press. Yes. Yes, but again, I wasn't trying to get in some political, none of us were trying to get into some political conversation. So we quickly realized the louder we were, the more it was gonna help her. She was just trying to get on Fox News and, and talk mm. about how she's standing up to these, to be honest, standing up to black women and telling them to stick to sports. That's like what we kind of deduced from the whole thing. So we, we decided to quiet down a little bit. We decided to get strategic. That's where Warnock came in. But to your point in terms of social media and having advocates and people allies as well people that can we have at the WNBA with our union we have a board of advocates and there's one particular woman on it Stacey Abrams so we have a relationship with Stacey prior to all of this so how amazing that we could call her up talk to her about Warnock she obviously knew the reverend now the senator very well she was able to connect us her actually I got to give a shout out to Lisa Borders, Borders as well she's our former president at the WNBA She's also somebody that connected all the dots, but what a way to have these people advise you and then be able to publicly back you, help you, basically put pressure on people from a social media standpoint. We actually were able to, to, to use our board of advocates in our CBA negotiations as well. So all of that, like having all of that happen simultaneously is really what helped us um, to your point with that public opinion, like that, that's, that's huge. And that's the world we live in as athletes. We have that platform. So you just got to make sure you're using it strategically and you can, for lack of a better, get what you want. Was the response what you anticipated or even more? Yeah. I mean, listen, we didn't do that. We didn't support Reverend Warnock to be devious and to just, you know, get back at her. It was really like what was right. He was mm. an amazing candidate all of our values aligned. And like I said, rather than get in a verbal, I don't know, altercation with her publicly, why not just find a candidate and talk about all the things that you came to the wobble to talk about in the first place? It was just a really great way for us to redirect. So if people had a problem with it, it's like, this is who we were as a league this whole time anyways. We've, we've supported Rock the Vote for many, many years. We've partnered with different organizations in that way for many years. So this was, this was like on par with what we had already been doing. So I don't think anyone was really concerned. And I thought, I mean, I think the proof's in the pudding. You know what I mean? Like everybody was really supportive. And, and, and I think 10, 15, 20 years 
obviously more hundreds of years, this will go down in, as one of the larger sports advocacy moments. If not the biggest one from last year. I mean, this is an owner who's no longer in the league. Um, Kathy, I want to I bring you in because we're talking about when, when, when negotiations, when you sort of can identify that it's not productive to keep talking or to talk in a certain way, how, mm -hmm. do, you, how do you sort of recognize that point in the deal where it's just not going to happen? Well, I'm not sure that you, um, I mean, look, Sue mentioned it even as, as they took a step back. Um, I think there's always a moment in any negotiation where hitting pause is not a bad idea if you're in a, in a really acrimonious sort of situation. And, and having the, the fortitude to take a pause and actually you know, to collect and, and reassess and then determine are there other ways. Because any negotiation, you call it asymmetrical, call it 3D chess, call it whatever you want, is, is gonna take a series of, of um, it's gonna be a series of peaks and valleys uh, in order to get to the end state in any of these things. And so, um, I, you know, I don't know that, um, that I'm ever in a position where I throw the towel in. I think it's more a moment where you call a timeout and, and you recollect and then you, you see if there's another way to go at it or a different voice sometimes. Uh, and I think that uh, sometimes it's, if you have the same person that's pushing the agenda, they may lose, the, the, the other side may lose the ability to hear what they're saying. And so introducing, it's why you actually have more people on a negotiating team that perhaps can bring a different voice or different clarity or whatever else it may be. Um, so I'm never an advocate of, of quitting. Um, I'm a, much more of an advocate of, of taking a pause and, and seeing if there's another direction that you can go, which is, is the same whether you're talking about um, whether it was the advocacy of the WNBA and Sue and, and her, um, uh, her colleagues actually initiated or whether it's in negotiation with athletes or negotiating a commercial deal where uh, I, would, I would stress that in those, it's not as, um, you're not in that same sort of uh, uh, tender box of a negotiation because you know, truthfully, both parties, when you get into that negotiation, you get into tough moments, but at the end of the day, you both want to achieve uh, the end state. And what's at stake is not the same, I think, as what, uh, what these guys are speaking to as it relates to uh, being a union negotiator or with management or what have you. So all of these are, are different, although what's interesting to me is the commonality of how you actually approach negotiation. You know, when negotiations get acrimonious like that, Kathy, are you more likely the person to take a pause or sometimes, you know, are there instances in a negotiation where it can be effective perhaps to use emotion or to put a little uh, a bit of bluster, you know, for lack of another word on the table. Yeah, no question. No question. I mean, I think uh, um, some Have of you ever done a spit some, take? <laughs> I've never done a spit take, um, <laughs> but I will say that, uh, that there are times where emotion will, will certainly um, carry the point. And so, yeah, I mean, we've all had those moments where you've been the good cop and other times where you've been the bad cop. Uh, and I think that's a requirement for those, mo for the most important either points or um, to normalize a, a negotiation around uh, the respect or around what's really the most important piece that you're actually in the midst of. I always also think that having breakout rooms is always important when you get into those long negotiations, because sometimes you need to call a timeout and just go collect your thoughts and make sure you have a, a fresh glass of water. But uh, yeah, no, I definitely have, uh, have, have uh, lost a moment, uh, lost some cool in, in negotiations, but sometimes that's warranted. And sometimes and I've also had, it, had people lose it on me too. full disclosure. <laughs> Can you name names? I'm just kidding. <laughs> D, who's the toughest of the owners? Can you name names? Who's the toughest negotiator? 
um, I'm not going to name names. I mean, they're 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 all tough. Um, I mean, look, we're talking about a group of people. I can remember being in Chicago. They they told us that they were going to uh, go into a breakout room and they'd be back with us in a half an hour. And those guys walked out on us. So, oh wow. Well, look, anybody who thinks that this is some sort of warm and fuzzy group of grandfathers who were just here to like build football and make things good needs to wake up. That's not what this is. This is a multi-billion dollar business run by a group of mostly white men who um, have done nothing but centralize power um, through monopolies in a way that they're not regulated. So, you know, to I, I think Kathy's absolutely right. There's times when you match, uh, you know, disrespect from one side with overwhelming respect. There's times when you match disrespect with disrespect. Um, but but the goal is to try to get something done. But I, I think having a realistic view of who your adversary is, whether you're a trial lawyer or trying homicide cases when I, like I used to do or, or in a negotiation room, um, nothing is more deadly and nothing is more dangerous than to not have a pure and real understanding of who you're negotiating. Well, Dee and Sue, because you're so public facing and you're in sports um, that have millions of fans, did you in the last CBA make public or, or shaping public opinion a part of the negotiation, part of the strategy of the negotiation? Yeah, for, for us, it's, it's basically what I touched on earlier about our board of advocates, just having them be able to tweet on our behalf. Um, you know, Sunny listens, one of them, and she was able to, you know, have opportunities for us to go on her show, things of that nature. Um, so that matters. And I think we also, as women, had a unique um, position, I guess, because as one, listen, sports to me mirrors society. And obviously as women, we're fighting for equity and equality and all these things. And as a sports league, to have things like family benefits, to have the opportunity to get a stipend to freeze your eggs, these are things that we can be leaders in. And so what we found in terms of the public opinion, the court of public opinion, everybody was on board with that. And so we were able to definitely use that and leverage it in a way where, hey, this isn't just about we play basketball, you pay us to do so. This is also a larger movement. So that I think the public opinion part in terms of that connection really helped us. Dee, do you think that public opinion was a part of this last CBA at all? You know, NFL fans, or, or does ownership really not care? Uh, I don't think they care. Uh, <laughs> I, because at the end of the day, um, everybody knows that, that football is going to come back and fans are going to come back to football. I mean, going to, to you know, I, I think it's, it's just something I have to mention. I, I think what the WNBA players uh, did and accomplished, frankly, is the most strategic and, and powerful and impactful um, um, use of, of finding a common goal that I've seen in, frankly, the history of sports. Um, you know, whether you have seen, you know, baseball players go on strike and, and, and cancel the World Series. You've seen the NFL players go on strike in the, in the 80s and the 90s. I don't know of a single instance where a group of union members came together in such a cohesive and powerful way and accomplished these things that, that they were able to accomplish. I mean, I, I, I use it as an example in front of our guys 
almost every day. I know they're tired of hearing about it, but um, they're, they're, they're going to remain getting tired of hearing about it until they rise to the level of, of what the WNBA players were able to accomplish. Thank you. That's incredible to hear. Thank you. It's true. Just the truth. I want to talk about a, a little bit about COVID, but not too much, partly because we don't have much time left and partly because I do want to end on, on an upbeat uh, note, but did, did COVID impact the negotiations that you guys all uh, went through last year? I'm sure it did, you know, all this had to be virtual, but what was the biggest challenge? Or maybe you maybe you liked it. Yeah. Maybe maybe you enjoy maybe you you enjoyed this. For, no, I mean it, it impacted us a lot. I mean I'll just say that we we probably had the better of the force majeure um, argument in uh, given our the way our CBA was written. So it certainly impacted us legally. We had to do two more CBA deals about the off season, and and much like Sue, you know the league put on the table you know a. a 20%, 30% reduction in salary um, in escrow that nobody really wanted. And, and as she rightly said, we wanted our players to make sure that they earned all of their full salary. So sure, COVID was, was uh, an important thing that we had to negotiate. Kathy, do you feel like for them, they had, they, yeah, they had to get on the court or on the field and they had to, to figure out how to get to solutions. I think we're in a different situation in uh, the Olympic and Paralympic movement, where certainly from a hosting perspective, you know, we don't host the games until uh, 2028 in Los Angeles. And so for us, it, it certainly has slowed down those discussions because in fact, uh, we have, there's a long runway now, um, obviously with Tokyo being postponed until mm. now uh, this year, that put some pressure on what we had to negotiate. But again, for us, it's a, it's a totally different paradigm. And therefore, um, you know, the, 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 the deadlines that sometimes cause the negotiations to heat up uh, were certainly a bit more disparate in our case than, than what, what uh, these guys were dealing with from a labor perspective, for sure. I'm going to get into some uh, Q&A from the audience for our last few minutes here. Um, first, for Sue Bird, I know uh, the NBA and the WNBA aren't the same org anymore, but is there a world where the player associations can be merged? in order to force more equitable negotiations between the men's and women's games? Um, yeah, I mean, it's actually not fair to say we're not the same organization. Like the NBA does own and it's owners right. half yeah. of us. So we are very much connected, intertwined. Um, and I think, you know, what's happening is this is the world we live in, we're all connected. And I think that the same goes for players. So even in the bubble, when we were both in our respective bubbles, there was communication. I actually was able to get on the phone with Chris Paul and be like, yo, what happened with Donald Sterling? Walk me through that, because I need to understand. So there's a relationship there. You might not see it um, just yet in terms of you know united front on one, on one particular issue or topic, um, but that's changing. That's definitely changing. Our unions are, are in close contact. They work together, they share the same office. Um, but I think again, the relationship between the players, those are just getting stronger and stronger. And I think people are just becoming better friends through, through this new united world we have of social media and so on and so forth. So it makes it really easy to, to, to bounce things off of each other and, and to steal ideas. That's really what it is. We're all just gonna end up stealing from each other and using that to our benefit. And I think mm -hmm. it's, it's um, you know, a form of flattery, to be honest. There is, there's a follow-up question to that, which is uh, what advice would you give to NCAA women players 
for more equitable, to get more equitable uh, treatment at March Madness, you obviously went to UConn powerhouse program. Um, what advice would you give them? You know, I think this isn't just specific to, to those athletes. I think in general, when you're approaching anything where you feel like it's been unjust or it's a negotiation where you're trying to get what you want, you have to be incredibly knowledgeable about what you're talking about. You can't just come in there, you know, throwing taglines around and demanding. You have to be, I mean, I think we've talked about the preparation of it all. And the same thing goes for a player. You know, you don't want to be on a call and have one player chime in and basically, you know, emotionally maybe have some sort of response to something. And it totally derails everything you've been working on. You need everybody to be knowledgeable. You need the players to be on the same page. I think that's all part of the preparation, the strategy. Um, and just understand that you're, I mean, I think we learned Sedona Prince. You know, a right. player Morgan, she's the one that set this off. These platforms are real. These platforms are real. And so you have to tend to them and care for them. And, and the way to do that, I think, is to be prepared and to be knowledgeable about things. And I think within about six hours of her sending out that, I think it was a TikTok video, you mm -hmm. saw that weight room completely transformed. I mean, it, it, did, it was not the same room, essentially, less than overnight. Uh, question for D. Um, from the audience, from a player perspective, this might be a question you heard before. What does the extra game accomplish? More money, sure, but what about long-term health? What about safety, permanent health insurance, et cetera? How yeah. were those components negotiated? They were all negotiated. Um, increases in, in our healthcare, increases in our, in our pension, um, increases in, in, in money going to players. Uh, was it important? Was it important for a group of players making minimum um, salaries in the National Football League to get a twenty percent pay raise during a pandemic? Yes. Uh, was it important for us to to continue to have the best pension, not only in sports? NFL players probably have the best pension in the United States, um, and and so. I understand why some people might look at things sometimes <laughs> somewhat myopically, but when you look at the 2011 CBA, the, the way we look at things and the way we talk to our players, we stack up the 2011 CBA, we put the 2020 uh, CBA, the proposed CBA next to it, and whether it's changes in everything from um, um, increasing me the, the, the mechanics for, for improving guaranteed contracts, making tenders guaranteed at the time uh, that they're optioned, giving players more financial security um, when, when options are exercised for them. If you're a player who has an incredibly short career, you want to do everything that increases um, their, their, their takeaways during that career, but we also insist setting up all of the things in the future whether it's the trust, second career benefits, pension, um, 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 and, and, and other benefits, those are important. And so measuring all of those things, that's what you measure against the package. And a quick follow-up to that. Uh, they want to know, will permanent, will guaranteed contracts ever come to the NFL? So uh, we're going to have to have just a little bit of a history lesson. So no guaranteed contract in basketball, baseball, or football is guaranteed by the CBA. There has to be sort of a point in time in history where people just have to understand facts. No contract um, is guaranteed by their CBA. Um, 
basketball was the first sport to have uniform, almost uniform guaranteed contracts, but that was because of custom. If you look at the difference between the Moses Malone contract and Larry Bird's contract, Larry Bird changed the, the, the field because he was the first person to negotiate a fully guaranteed contract. And after that, uh, guaranteed contracts uh, became a matter of custom. Fast forward, Kirk Cousins does exactly the same thing. The biggest question I have is why didn't the major quarterbacks who did quarter their contracts after Kirk Cousins, how come they didn't insist on the same guaranteed mm. terms that he did? Guys, we have to leave it on that. It is 45 after the hour. These are the panelists who know how the sausage gets made. Some of them even wrote the fine print on the side of the sausage container. Thank you so much, you guys. You'll never find panelists who are more expert at big deals in sports. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. This recording is the property of 42 Analytics and may not be published, broadcast, rewritten, or redistributed without the express written consent of 42 Analytics. Any opinions expressed by panelists are their own and do not represent the beliefs of the conference, 42 Analytics, or the MIT Sloan School of Management. 42 Analytics Educational, Inc. reserves all rights in the content.